Pentecost, we are nearing the end of our mini-series within 1 Corinthians, the Gift of the Holy Spirit sermon series, um, where we're finally going to see in some detail how in the world the early church actually engaged in a worship service with these various revelatory gifts being manifested somewhat frequently. I think that this is going to kill any tendency that we have to romanticize the early church. I know very often I've heard people say things to the effect of, wouldn't it just be great if the Lord spoke frequently and so often and powerfully as he did in the early church? And to be honest, I think by the end of this chapter, it will be very clear how profoundly difficult that actually was. In the Bible, there are these seasons, generations, that receive extraordinary signs, extraordinary revelation, and they're very glad to be leaving that time period or that generation. Think about the generation of Moses that witnessed the exodus and the feeding in the wilderness. You also consider that long season and how much judgment attended it. The same is in many respects true of the early church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray that the Lord would prepare us for his word, that he would write our hearts, open them to its teaching, so that we might even be the more glad in the quaint form of worship that you're probably all, most of all, acquainted with. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we come to you not unlike the Jewish people did, always begging for another sign. Always begging for more. Too ready, Lord God, to neglect the written word right in front of our faces. Too ready to neglect ordinary worship. Lord, I pray that as we read the chapter before us, we would leave understanding and appreciating how powerfully the gospel is proclaimed every single Lord's Day, in spite of the fact that it might not be marked by the smoke and mirrors of worldly production. God, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Trinitas Church, if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to read verses 26 to 40. And then when we're finished, I'll say this is God's word. And if you may respond, thanks be to God. We'll give thanks to the Lord for his inspired teaching. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? 
If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. This is God's word. Well, Trinitas Church, as we have emphasized so many times, what we've been reading about in these chapters of Corinthians are chapters that tell us about the formative period of the Christian church. So many things were not settled for them as they are so clearly settled for us, and so we read. When the Corinthians would assemble, as was the case, no doubt, with most of the early church congregations... There were many new things that had to be done. Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Friends, we've already spoken in great depths about the gifts of prophecy and revelation of tongues and interpretation. We've seen that these are immediate and fallible revelations from God from which the church would be fed and benefited. I'll mention briefly about another thing mentioned. It says that when you come together, people come with a teaching. This might seem strange. It points us to a time when the full body of Christian revelation had yet to be entrusted to anyone in the form of a single combined written canon or text of the New Testament. What this means, therefore, is that it wouldn't be surprising if people in the Corinthian church said, we have a new teaching that hasn't been disclosed here yet. We've heard by way of word of mouth That there is another letter written by another apostle that was sent to this church. Let me share with you the teaching from that revelation. By the same right, there were prophets who were speaking new words from the Lord. Remember that teaching is not the same as prophecy. People might have inferred from the revelation that had been spoken last week. That this doctrine or this application applies in ways that no one had foreseen. What's noteworthy is that even in this age where there were new teachings to be heard and to be shared with believers, even these new teachings had to be tested by Scripture. This might sound surprising to you, but the written word was so authoritative in the early church that even new revelations and teachings from other quarters of the church had to be measured by the written word. Some have debated whether the Apostle Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Friends, I think it is absolutely unambiguous that he did. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38, which we just read. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Can you believe that? What ordinary person can say that the things I'm writing to you are God's commandments? What Paul is saying is that the entire organization of the church, the order of her worship, must measure up to the standard of the New Testament writings of which his own are some, even if that canon is not fully complete yet. Paul even follows up his statement by saying, if anyone does not recognize this, that's my commandment, then he is not recognized implicitly by the Lord. 
If you can't hear the Lord's voice in my writings as instructed and as a guide to you as a church, then you are not one of those sheep who knows their shepherd's voice. It's a rather remarkable thing for Paul to say. This is certainly a reprieve, a rather severe reprieve, on various Christian traditions of which perhaps the Eastern Orthodox is the paramount example, which would say that in fact, revelation must ultimately be interpreted in light of tradition, oral statements passed down rather than the reverse. Paul says to the contrary, ultimately every revelation must be tested by scripture, which was then being formulated This is why Paul can say that even if he or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Paul can say on the basis of my own inscripturated writings, even I stand to be judged so that if I aberrate from them, take those over me. What a remarkable age of the church this was. Another reference to be found in verse 26 that you might not have noticed is that Paul says that when you come together, each one has a psalm. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but the early church didn't have any songs yet that praised Jesus Christ by name. We come to church every Lord's Day with a vast 2,000 year long hymnody tradition wherein we praise Jesus by name, by familiar tunes. Really, church didn't have this. This, again, is a sort of bit of guidance for us. There are some in the Reformed tradition who argue that we should only sing biblical psalms. It's called exclusive psalmody. It is very clear that that's not what's happening here in the Corinthian church. In the Bible, whenever God has done something mighty and miraculous and wonderful, the first thing that the people of God do is not write a systematic theology. The first thing they do is write a song about it. So there's the song of Moses on the other side of the Red Sea, the song of the sea. So the song of Deborah, after the people are delivered in the time of the judges. So there are the many songs of David, many songs in the prophets. There's the Magnificat spoken by Mary. Songs are spoken when mighty deeds of redemption are accomplished. And so one would infer by the very themes of the Bible that when Jesus has conquered death on the cross, new songs must be read and spoken and sung about it. Can you imagine church where we never sang about the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, or the second coming by those very terms? These things are referenced in a variety of ways as they are foretold in the Psalms of the Old Testament. But we sing them by the very direct reference to them. In the New Testament, there's even evidence that these sorts of songs are already being written. Philippians 2 invites a meter to be read as a song. 1 Thessalonians 3.16, these sorts of summary statements of the faith, even the Apostles' Creed, which many of us have spoken in church many times, was very likely sung before it was simply read. I want to point you to the fact, Trinitas, that we have been benefiting from this new psalmody and hymnody in the church ourselves. We often conclude our service with a song called, Come Holy Ghost. Many of you may not know this. That was written by Ambrose of Milan in the 4th century. We're singing a song that's been sung for 1,600 years. 
When we sing Be Thou My Vision, it was written by a Christian poet, Dallin Foragain, in the 6th century, an Irish individual poet. Not only that, but many of the songs that we sing have deep biblical reference, but the inspiration for writing them in the first place came from church historical events. A mighty fortress is our God. Martin Luther wrote this song, and he wrote it in the midst of the Reformation, where there were many assaults on himself and the church. Amazing Grace, written by John Newton, inspired by the slave trade. And the fact that God could be gracious to those who had participated in it. Practitioners of it. It is well with my soul. You know that one? It was written by Horatio Spafford after a series of horrible personal losses in life. And even a song like Holy, Holy, Holy that celebrates the Trinity. Written by Reginald Heber an Anglican missionary and eventually bishop of the Anglican church in Calcutta. A man in a culture that was immersed in polytheism and pantheism, thought, inspired, or was inspired to write a song praising specifically the triune God in contrast to these pagan theologies. For all of that, friends, we should note that we still would do well to sing biblical psalms because what you'll notice is the biblical psalms consistently have themes that we tend to neglect in our own songwriting. Turn on Spirit 105.3, you will very rarely hear a song about Christian warfare. You will very, very rarely hear a song that actually speaks to the fact that we as Christians have real enemies in the biblical psalms, therefore, have always been a part of Reformed worship to remind us of these themes that we tend to gravitate away from when left to ourselves. Well, with this picture of the early church in this formative time, I'm going to talk to you about the burden of the extravagant. When we read this chapter, it is clear that the more extravagant anything is, the more burdensome it will likely be to everyone involved in it. A more familiar sort of tale for all of you is the story of the 80s rock band. You've got these 80s rock band that just go on two world tours, and when they're 40, they look like they're 75. You guys know who I'm talking about. These seasons of incredible extravagance are tolling. They're difficult to manage. And that's what we see in this apostolic era of the church. As much as we might envy the extravagance of those early days of the church, I think the church in the first century would very likely envy us. Envy us for the orderliness and the peace with which we are able to worship every Lord's Day. To be honest with you, I never thought I would say this, but in perhaps the most charismatic chapter of the Bible, we actually encounter something that looks like a primitive book of church order in Robert's Rules of Order. That's really what we have here. You might not have noticed that, but I'm going to expound this for you. And what I want you to do while I'm expounding how worship would work out in the early churches, I want you to start painting the mental picture for yourself with every rule that Paul sets there for how long and potentially burdensome a Lord's Day worship service would be. So paint this picture as we go along. Paul has already alluded to the fact that in every 
worship service or normal worship services, you would have singing of songs like we're used to. You would have prayer. You would have teachers and the teaching of the word and the reading of the word. You would have the Lord's Supper and the sacraments. That's the stuff we do. Now, I want you to add to it these additional phenomenon that would apparently happen on the Lord's Day and think about how you would deal with this given even perhaps your frustrations with how long my sermons often are. Okay, so think about this. On top of all of that, rule number one is that in a worship service, two or at the most three tongue speakers may offer a message. So on top of everything else we're doing, two to three people are going to get up and they are going to speak a revelation in an unknown language. Who knows for how long? No time limit is specified. The fact that Paul says at the most three would already indicate that Paul is concerned that this could get out of hand and it might be best to just have two. But at the most three, he says. That's rule number one. Two or three. Rule number two is that they must speak one by one. Many of you might get the idea that in a season like this, perhaps we should divide the church into two, and maybe we'll have one tongue speaker over here, one over there, so that we can expedite this process a bit. We've got some things to do on the rest of the Lord's Day. Paul says no. The church is one body, we will worship as one body, therefore those speakers will speak in turn if they speak at all. We will worship together, says Paul. Everyone must listen. These revelatory gifts are not to be exercised solely for small groups in the church. The whole church must pay attention. This is rule number two, each one in turn. Now rule number three. Every instance of tongue speech must be followed by an interpreter. Now think about this, friends. We've already added to our service three tongue speakers. Now you're going to add to it three interpretations, which would presumably be something similar in the length of time to each one of those episodes of tongue speaking. Three more speeches. Friends, you might wonder how in the world, as well, you would identify whether an interpreter was actually present. You might ask, how far into the message of tongue speech can one get before a tongue, an interpreter must either identify himself as knowing what he's saying, or the speaker himself must be silent? The answer presumably is not by the end of the tongue speech because the verse says that if there is no interpreter, he must remain silent. Think about the processes that would have to take place to identify these different parts and how complex our service might be. The fourth rule is that two or three prophets may speak. You've got three tongue speakers, you've got three interpreters potentially, and now you might have two or three prophets. Once again, it's not specified how long they might be speaking. One wonders, were there set periods in that printed liturgy that you have where everyone knew after the first song, it's the tongue speaker's turn. After the second song, then it's going to be the prophet's turn. How would people even know 
to differentiate these things? Or could it just be that a tongue speaker speaks up, and then after that, a prophet speaks up? Then another tongue speaker, and yet another interpreter was to be found, and so on and so forth. What a challenge this would have been every Lord's Day. We're already at nine speakers, friends, but it doesn't end there. Rule number five is that prophets are not simply allowed to speak and to expect that everyone present is going to recognize or agree that the word they have spoken is actually from the Lord. In fact, it's an open question. Therefore, in verse 29, it says, let the others pass judgment. Who are these others? Probably other prophets with the additional gift of discerning or distinguishing spirits spoken of in chapter 12, verse 10. You might ask, what criterion would they use to judge and to evaluate other prophetic speech? Well, the answer is scripture itself. In the Old Testament, we have tests for prophets. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams should come and say anything contrary to the law which I have given you, then he is not of the Lord. You have the Old Testament scriptures. You have the official apostles in the church, not just prophets, but officers and their written instruction. And on the basis of scripture, false prophets could be identified. Jesus himself warned many times that the church would be infiltrated by false prophets. So now, in your worship service, you are actually potentially concerned that one of the speakers in church might actually be a false one. Can you imagine how burdensome this would be? One of the wonderful things is it says the others are to pass judgment. Um, guys, how do you determine that a consensus has been reached? How is the judgment passed that certain spoken words are not just not the word of God, but maybe contrary to it? Do the others have to have a unanimous vote? Does there need to be a majority vote? Or maybe, could maybe even a minority of those evaluating say, that's not from the Lord, and it be accepted as such? This all in the course of our worship service. Trinitas Church, I'll let you know I participate in Presbytery. I have watched men debate matters for hours that are far less complex than whether or not a new revelation is from the Lord. I have watched debate go on about simply approving a docket. That is a course of items to be discussed and the order of their discussion. I have watched debate transpire for at least 45 minutes to just approve an order of discussion. Imagine going to church where a certain group of people are going to evaluate, debate, and discuss the validity of a said revelation. You might even furthermore ask, what should happen if the conclusion of that deliberation process is that the prophet is indeed a false teacher? Would we then, in the middle of the service, perform an excommunication right then and there on our way to the Lord's Supper? Or would that transpire a few weeks later? Remarkably, the sixth requirement has perplexed so many commentators. It says that if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Seems strange. Sounds like a person can just interrupt another prophet right in the middle of their discourse, and the first prophet has to be quiet. 
All sorts of speculations as to why this would be a requirement or a rule have been given. One is the suggestion that perhaps one of those evaluating prophets had an immediate veto power in case the prophet who got up there was saying something so obviously terrible and ridiculous that it needed to be stopped immediately. Like if someone got up and said, I prophesy that Donald Trump is the second coming of Christ, you'd be like, oh, that's not a revelation. Take a seat. Thank you. Back down. I got a revelation right now that that is not a revelation. Just stop. Stop right there. This sort of procedure and process is the sort of thing that can be drawn out remarkably. A seventh rule is this. Paul says, in short, that everyone can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. What does Paul obviously mean, therefore? If you have prophetic words, you can all get your word out eventually, but certainly not in one service, in one gathering of God's people. You can all speak one by one. We had three this week, so if you are six, seven, eight, or nine, you will be next week or the week after. I can only imagine that there would be a certain sort of annoyance with other people. Imagine if you had a revelation to share, a word from the Lord. You have been waiting for some time, but there's always this other guy who gets up and always have a, has a revelation and goes on and on, and it's not infrequently questionable as to whether it's really from the Lord. And you're thinking, good grief. I've got a real word from the Lord. Isn't it imperative that it gets out to the church this week? And Paul's answer, the Holy Spirit's answer is no, it's not. It's better for things to be orderly. The eighth thing that Paul says, uh, generally regarded as the most offensive, is that women are to be quiet in the service. Now, the word that he uses for quiet or silent does not mean that they will not let out a peep. I mean, this verse is pulled out of context and just read as if it stood alone. It's one of those verses that people lament about, people get frustrated about and denounce Christianity over. Clearly, it does not mean absolute silence in the church. It is already said that the tongue speaker who doesn't have an interpreter is to be silent in the church. Does that mean that he's supposed to be absolutely silent for all time? In fact, implicitly, he had to be speaking already to be quieted because there is no interpreter. It's already presupposed that women are going to participate in singing and responsive readings and all of these aspects of the church that are corporate. And in chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, we have certain requirements for how women should go about prophesying in the church. So what then does Paul mean when he says that women are to be quiet otherwise? One of three options are the case. It either means that women are to share their prophecies outside of the normal service, which seems unlikely because in chapter 11, it seems rather clear that women are prophesying in the service, In which case, this verse must be read in light of what Paul's already said. And he's saying this, despite the fact that a woman may receive a prophetic revelation, as I've been discussing. As I mentioned earlier in chapter 11, women are nevertheless in normal circumstances to be quiet in the churches, for they're not permitted to be the regular speakers from the office of a teacher, as it were, of authority. Even more to the point, what Paul is probably saying, is that with reference to the speech that I have just referenced in verse 29, that is, speaking by way of public evaluation of the prophets, women were not supposed to be part of that process. 
In short, there's an aspect of teaching that isn't about how much you know or your ability to be compelling when you speak. There's an aspect of teaching which is combat. It is that aspect of teaching which made for a situation in the Old Testament where only priests were the formal teachers of the nation. Which makes for a scenario in the New Testament where when you're evaluating a prophetic word as referenced in verse 29, women were not to participate in that because that is a point of defense and combat meant to be headed by the leaders of the church. You look at man's initial fall into sin and what happened. Man is not engaging in combat against the false teaching of the serpent who's infiltrated the garden. Therefore, Paul says, as even the law teaches, from this point forward and all throughout redemptive history, it is necessary for the men of the church to take up that combative element of speaking and teaching, guarding against false teachers. This especially makes sense of verse 35, that if a woman desires to learn anything, probably about that process of judgment and deliberation about whether a word is really from the Lord, let them ask their own husband at home. That's the context. We have scenarios, for example, in the Presbytery called executive session where we shut all of the doors. Nobody but the ordained elders and pastors discuss a matter. We do it in a private context so that it's not aired before everyone. And if someone is ultimately desiring to know the conclusion of that process, one would ask one of the people present afterwards. This is the best way to read this passage. I know that many of us still go, ah, But I would never say it like that. Silence, subjection, subservience, good grief. These are the things that sound like denigratory language to women. I should simply note that all of those words were already used in the chapter about how prophets and and tongue speakers should conduct themselves. Did it bother you when you read it there? I bet it didn't. I bet it didn't because... We don't have this same set of associations with silencing those people as we've historically had with the problem of silencing women altogether. And that's why this brings offense. But we need to be clear on something. There is no humanly possible way to articulate truths that will not ever offend anyone in different circumstances. In Paul's context, they didn't have the same sort of hang-ups that we currently do. That word silence doesn't sound so severe as it does to our ear. And we must be clear, therefore, and take a little bit, little bit of peace as well, that, friends, even our best efforts at speaking the truth in love with the careful consideration for other people will never be able to make everybody happy. Sometimes they're just going to be rough to the ear. So it is here. So what do we take from this Trinitas Church as we see this potentially somewhat burdensome portrait of early church worship. Certain things bear on us as much as they ever did. The first one is this. You cannot sanctify anything at all for which you do not plan. Anything that is really holy in your life is something for which you must engage in a great deal of planning. You look at this procedure, how this is to play out. Someone, namely Paul, did a lot of planning to make sure that church could be orderly. You ask yourself, what would happen if one of the interpreters who can interpret didn't show up? One of the discerners who has that gift doesn't show up. You can imagine that it would be cumbersome for everyone. 
We've got to take this ourselves, Trinitas Church, to today and realize we can't sanctify worship here at Trinitas if we don't plan for it. We can't sanctify this worship to our own enjoyment and edification and to others if we don't plan for it. Your own planning, your own resolution to be present, your own resolution to be joyful when you get here, your preparations the night before so that in the morning you don't find yourself stressed out on your way to church. Prayer for your attitude. Imagine if somebody, somebody in the, in the Corinthian context itched with glee and excitedness to share their word from the Lord, their revelation tomorrow, and they didn't do the mental planning to go, wait a second, I might not be one of the three prophets who makes it to the microphone first. Because they didn't plan and consider how their heart might be challenged the next day. We cannot have worship that is edifying and encouraging to one another, even to ourselves, if we don't prepare for it. Even preparation to speak life to your neighbors, having joyful things to speak to them, rather than nothing at all. But downcast, sad emotions. This is the Lord's Day. This extends to the sorts of things you might take up with the people. I'm going to tell you something that would be really wise. You should never, ever come to this church and plan before or after to have a really hard conversation with someone. There's a better time for that. There's a much better time for that. And what you'll do is you'll inculcate a really sour taste for church in that person and in yourself because you did not plan and you did not prepare. And let me put it this way. Maybe you think, wow, this is so important that I really got to lay this on my sister or brother. Guess what? If a prophet with a revelation from God can be told to be silent because it won't work for order, guess what? This burden that you think needs to be laid on your brother today can wait. It can wait so that we can plan to have this be a time of worship, of joy, and of gladness. Some might say, but Brian, what if I need to reconcile with my brother before I come to the Lord's table? Guess what? You've got six days before Sunday to do that. Otherwise, refrain. It'd be better. We can't sanctify this time if we don't plan for it has everything to do with our own encouragement and upbuilding and with our neighbors. It's one wonderful, you know, when you think about this, if you live a Christian life where every Lord's Day is an open question as to whether or not you're going to worship the Lord, I promise you it will be the very least worshipful. Imagine your job if it worked that way. Every day that you had to go to work, it's an open question, am I going to go today? I think we all know that you might go maybe 50% as much as you do or less But your mental preparedness to just do your job would never be there. Because it's always up in question. Our ability to be built up and encouraged to do all things for edification, as Paul says in verse 26, has everything to do with our planning. If we don't plan for it, we don't prepare for it. Worship is going to pass us by as a not particularly joyful thing. It's going to be something that never seems to quite be enough to nourish our souls. The second thing that we need to consider, therefore, is this, that order in the church, order in the church for any length of time requires a certain sort of appreciation for the ordinary and the simple. 
In short, the more extravagant and exciting anything is, the more difficult and imposing it is for someone. Maybe you've never considered this because maybe you live your whole life in churches which have all the stops, have amazing things happening all the time, and you never lifted a finger, and you go, wow, why can't I have this now? It's because that's extremely expensive, and somebody is working hand over foot to make that happen, and that doesn't work for everybody. Let's consider some of the extravagant things we could do. Imagine you picked up your liturgy and you looked at the events for the coming months and you read, oh, this looks interesting. September, family trip to Disneyland. Wow, that sounds great. Cost four to $8,000. Got any scholarships? What person is going to plan a church trip to Disneyland? How many of you could make it? Sounds great. Sounds fun. Who's deciding all those airline tickets? Who's deciding where we're all going to stay? And where exactly in Adventureland are we going to meet to have this fellowship together? The more fun and exciting in a worldly sense anything is, the more work and the more labor it is going to take to facilitate that. And you see that in the early church. And it's just not sustainable. Many of us step back and say, wouldn't it be awesome if we had a 15-piece orchestra for our music every Sunday? That'd be so cool. Yeah. Except for when the one cellist we have who has to do a solo doesn't make it, and it ruins the entire thing. These are cool things. These are wonderful things. But I will tell you right now, if you don't have any appetite for the quaint and the simple and yet the truly worshipful, If you don't love those things, you are going to be chasing movements rather than resting in the satisfaction of Christ. One of the great marks of the Reformation after, well, all the Reformed and Lutheran churches by and large lost their property or at least lost a great deal of their wealth is that worship got a lot more simple. The fact of the matter was that they didn't have the cathedrals quite like they used to. They didn't often have the support of the state, which the church often did. And they had to emphasize what you'd otherwise call the ordinary means of grace. Trinitas, 1 Corinthians 14 would have us know that the heart and soul of the church is our Lord's Day gathering in an orderly fellowship that emphasizes at its heart a God who is not a God of confusion or even necessarily extravagance, but the God of the gospel. Our planning is how we sanctify this. Our commitment, these matters are how we set it apart. I sometimes think as believers, we just undervalue the passing conversations we have on the Lord's Day. And frequently I'll hear people say, you know, I just don't have any Christian friends. I don't have the depth of fellowship that I'd like. I'll have you know that for centuries, the Lord's Day might have been the only sort of interaction with your neighbors that you had. Because you lived on a farm 14 miles from the church house, maybe 14 miles from your neighbors. And this is where you got it. This is where you got your fellowship. I'll have you know this, we sometimes undervalue just seeing the same faces regularly, hearing a bit of their burdens and praying for them and going on with the rhythm of life. 
clearly these are the sorts of things that believers have to have for certain seasons in their life, and it's not marked by the same level of extravagant fellowship and wonderful ministry opportunities. Gotta embrace it. The third thing that I want to emphasize to you is that our worship, Trinitas, it might be the strongest witness to the sort of God that we claim to serve. Many of us may be very articulate in the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. We can tell you about God's sovereignty, His Trinity. We can tell you about regeneration. We can explain it all perfectly. But how we worship declares what we really believe about God. Paul makes this basic point in verse 33. He says, God is not a God of confusion. He says, Corinthians, your worship would actually reveal that you're not worshiping Yahweh, you're not worshiping Jesus, but you're worshiping Bacchus or Dionysius, the God of confusion of the Greeks and Romans. The way that you worship with this aim for extravagance, this aim to posture yourself is great, and the chaos that attends it, it is more becoming of a false God, like the gods of the Greeks and Romans, than it is of Christ. Trinitas, I want to say by way of contrast that um, every Lord's Day we are literally proclaiming things awesome and wonderful. When we worship in a way that we have planned for it, prepared for it, readied our hearts for it, we are declaring that God is holy. That he's holy. When we worship in a way that's evident we prioritize this time with the Lord above all else, we are saying that God is holy. We have set him apart in our hearts, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. That he is that object that commands our attention above all else. We are declaring that every single Lord's Day here. Do you sing the song, holy, 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 and love it? I'll tell you this, if church... And the responsibilities to which we have signed up and the things that we have focused on for his worship always catch us by surprise. We are really singing by our actions, mundane, 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 is the Holy Trinity. When we come in preparation, we also declare that God is spirit. He's not the smoke in the mirrors of the world. He is not primarily known by external beauty. You cannot see our God in this congregation and fellowship by looking at the extravagance of our outward appearance. You cannot see him there. It's because we have come to worship the one about whom the Bible says he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. The beauty of our worship is not in our lighting. The beauty of our worship is not in our religious arts. It's in our love and peace and patience and kindness, all things being done for edification here. And so it is the God, the God whom we worship is those things in reality. I hope every time you come to church on the Lord's Day, you come to offer your very presence to the service of that end. I hope you make coffee to that end. I hope that you serve in the nursery to that end. I hope you sing with the band to that end. I hope you even step back from certain opportunities to serve to that same end that your brothers and sisters as well may participate and that all things will be done for edification and upbuilding. And heaven forbid if that's just not enough to excite us to worship as we ought. If it's not enough, then the God that we worship is not spirit. 
The God that we worship is tangible things, mammon, excitement, the things of the world. Trinitas, when we come to church and worship as the Lord has called us to, we declare that our God is living. He is not an idea or a philosophy that sits in our minds or systematic theology books alone. He is a living and active God. And when we worship him, we are made into a living and acting body with one voice so that we actually speak with one voice, with some gusto, as a living, breathing body of Christ. We declare that our God is the living God, as Jeremiah 10.10 says, when our worship is not droll, but lively and marked by a readiness to stand when so called, to kneel, to confess, to speak our faith, and to sing it. Look at the awesome things being proclaimed in this room. When we gather for worship as Christ is asked, we declare God is our Savior. He is not a generic source of joy and fun. I hope you don't come here to hear stories from chicken soup from the soul because you've never heard one in this church because God is not just a bit of inspiration for us about how to love, live more happily. God is a Savior and we declare it in the very form of our worship. Maybe you have noticed that every Lord's Day we call you into worship as Christ called us out of the grave. Every Lord's Day, we confess our sins to receive and to hear the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And only after we've acknowledged the gospel and its application to us, do we go to the word to be instructed by it as those already saved. Only to turn thereafter at the climax to a communion meal with our Lord and our Christ. To proclaim the gospel is not just about freedom from sin, but ongoing fellowship, communion, and conformity to Christ. I hope you've noticed that we preach the gospel every Sunday in what we do, and you leave every Sunday with a blessing. We don't ever change it up with a curse pronounced over you, because in Jesus Christ, we have life and peace and gladness. Finally, I hope that it's clear to you that every Lord's Day we declare that God is the Trinity. God is at once the very Son of God speaking to us in his scriptures, in his word, asking us as his bride to respond and feeding us with his own body and blood. Every Lord's Day service, I hope it's clear to you that it is the very Spirit of God living and acting in you and me and all of us who compels us to respond to Christ, to respond to Christ and without whom no one here could say that Jesus is Lord, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He is in us and animating us. I hope it's clear that the Father is the great planner who has planned our salvation and therefore our every action, our every word spoken, our every thought is devoted to him in praise and worship. We worship as the Bible calls us to. We will proclaim who our God is in everything we do in this service. And I'll just end with this. Believer, these sorts of reflections that I've just offered are the sorts of keys to being free from the lie that worship every Sunday was as good or as bad as it left you feeling. Our worship every Lord's Day is not determined by how it left you feeling, but by the objective offering of praise and worship that we have given to our Father regardless. The quality of our worship every Lord's Day is not determined by how it has left you tingling or not tingling, convicted or not particularly convicted. It is determined 
by the reality of the sort of God that we have proclaimed in it and so worshipped in it. That's what we're here to do. To proclaim Him. Unbeliever, I hope, if you are with us, that you would meet the God whom we confess in word and deed and worship. You'd meet Him as the Savior of sinners, that it's clear that we believe He is such. That if you confess your sins to the Lord just the same and receive Christ as Savior, you will be set free and pass from death into life. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we have not treated you wholly as we ought. We're honest, Lord, we have, upon reflection, sanctified very many things in our hearts, over and above and besides you. We have denounced your worship. We have been dissatisfied with your worship, chiefly and often on the basis of how we left, feeling that our needs have been met over and above a sober evaluation of whether or not our worship is directed to your glory in the manner that you have asked. Lord, you have saved us. Saved us from our sins. We pray therefore, Lord God, that you would deliver us from that lingering old man, an old woman inside of us who wants nothing but ourselves and our emotions to be worshipped over and above you. Set us free from that person. May we be glad May we be glad in you, especially as we tend to you. Turn our thoughts and our minds and our meditations to you. In Jesus' name we pray, by your Holy Spirit. Amen.